You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 293 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. The failure of the bloody assaults of May 19th and 22nd convinced Ulysses S. Grant that the Confederates' Vicksburg defenses couldn't be taken by storm, at least not yet. To avoid another bloodbath, he decided to as he put it, quote, outcamp the enemy. Of his decision to lay siege to Vicksburg, Grant wrote in his memoirs, quote, with the Navy holding the river, the investment of Vicksburg was complete. As long as we could hold our position, the enemy was limited in supplies of food, men, and munitions of war to what they had on hand. These could not always last. In other words, as long as no outside forces intervened, the clock was ticking for Confederate Commander John Pemberton and the Vicksburg garrison. Once Grant laid laid siege to the place, it was only a matter of time until the rebel stronghold fell and the Federals could claim their victory. And so on May 25, 1863, following the belated brief truce to bury the dead and remove the wounded, Grant issued the appropriate orders, saying, quote, Corps commanders will immediately commence the work of reducing the enemy works by regular approaches. It is desirable that no more loss of life shall be sustained in the reduction of Vicksburg and the capture of the garrison. Every advantage will be taken of the natural inequalities of the ground to gain positions from which to start mines, trenches, or advance batteries. This, this massive undertaking was placed under the general supervision of the Army of the Tennessee's chief engineer, Captain Frederick Prime. But Grant wasn't the only officer whose thoughts turned to siege operations as the surest means of compelling the surrender of Vicksburg. Engineer officers in both armies had anticipated such a development and prepared accordingly. One man who ventured out of the rebel lines during the short truce was Samuel Lockett, who, as you guys will recall, was the very officer who had supervised the construction of the Confederates' Vicksburg defenses. 
Taking advantage of the truce to venture out and scan the ground from the Federal's perspective allowed Lockett to look for clues as to how the enemy might approach the rebel positions with their siege lines. However, while he was standing there, Lockett was approached by a Union soldier who informed him that Sherman wished to speak to him. Lockett was surprised to hear this, but followed the man along Graveyard Road toward the Federal lines. As Lockett came up, Sherman stepped forward and said, I saw that you were an officer by your insignia of rank, and have asked you to meet me to put into your hands some letters entrusted to me by northern friends of some of your officers and men. I thought this would be a good opportunity to deliver this mail before it got too old. Lockett confidently replied, Yes, General, it would have been very old indeed if you had kept it until you brought it into Vicksburg yourself. Sherman was amused by Lockett's cheekiness and said, So, you think then, I am a very slow mail route. Lockett had confidence in the strength of his fortifications and answered with a slight boast, referring to the slow and tedious methods used to advance siege lines. He said, well, more exactly, when you have to travel by regular approaches, parallels, and zigzags. Sherman said, yes, that is a slow way of getting into a place, but it is a very sure way, and I was determined to deliver those letters sooner or later. The two men then sat and talked about things other than war. Lockett recalled that it was a quote-unquote pleasant conversation, during which time quickly passed. Before long, the truce expired and everyone returned to their own lines. Reflecting upon his conversation with Sherman, Lockett realized that, quote, intentionally or not, his civility certainly prevented me from seeing many other points in our front that I, as chief engineer, was very anxious to examine. A federal officer on a similar mission during the truce was Captain Andrew Hickenlooper, chief engineer of McPherson's 17th Corps. Hickenlooper used the time to examine the area near the Jackson Road and noticed that the 3rd Louisiana Redan, jutting out from the Confederate line, dominated the adjacent earthworks. He realized that if the Federals gained possession of that fort, the rebel defenses on lower ground to either side would be untenable. Unlike Lockett, Hickenlooper was able to make a careful study of the terrain without being distracted. Once the truce ended, he returned to his tent and prepared a map on which he plotted the best route of approach to the Confederate position. The next morning, federal engineer officers began overseeing the digging of 13 approaches, or saps, toward the Confederate defenses. The work of constructing these saps was the focus of siege operations for the next six weeks. Such activity drew little attention from the northern newspapermen who covered Grant's army. The reporters and their editors considered siege operations to be monotonous and mundane, and therefore printed surprisingly little about the principal activity of the Union Army at Vicksburg. Federal soldiers also considered shoveling dirt to be boring 
and left only sketchy accounts of their daily labors. Of the 13 saps dug by the Federals during the siege, the most successful was the one Hickenlooper pushed forward along the Jackson Road toward the 3rd Louisiana Redan. It was known as Logan's Approach, after Major General John Logan, who was the commander of the division occupying the front line where the sap was located. On May 26th, a force of 300 men, laboring in shifts of 100 men each, began work on the approach under Hickenlooper's direction. The sappers, as they were called, broke ground south of the Jackson Road, approximately 150 feet southeast of the Shirley House and 400 yards east of their objective. A typical sap of the Civil War era was about 7 feet deep and 8 feet wide, which was deep enough to allow the average man of the time to stand up without exposing himself to enemy sharpshooters, and wide enough to allow the passage of a column of assault troops four abreast. Because excavated dirt was piled up on either side of the approach, its actual depth often was closer to 10 feet. The sappers at Vicksburg worked round the clock with picks and shovels in terrific heat and humidity, but as the Confederates had discovered the previous year, excavation of the soft soil, known as luss, was easy and progress was rapid. In fact, by the end of the first day, the sap extended several hundred feet westward from its starting point. Federal sappers at Vicksburg were protected from enemy musketry by contraptions known as sap rollers, which were large barrel-shaped bundles of cane and vine woven together and packed with dirt, cotton, or whatever would stop a bullet. A sap roller was assembled and placed on the ground just in front of the head of an approach. As the excavation progressed, the sappers used poles to push the roller forward. In the case of Logan's approach, however, the initial sap roller was a railroad flat car fitted with wooden wheels and stacked high with 20 bales of cotton. The flat car also served as a mobile firing platform since the cotton barricade was put up complete with headlogs and loopholes for riflemen. That meant Hickenlooper's sappers essentially had their own fire support. In this way, the Federals drove the approach forward toward the 3rd Louisiana Redan with little fear of Confederate sharpshooters. On the morning of May 27th, Hickenlooper turned the sap south to avoid a ravine. After that detour, the approach followed a low ridge back to the Jackson Road. The sap reached the road two days later, at which point Hickenlooper again turned west toward his objective, which was now just 200 yards away. The digging continued around the clock. One veteran of the siege later recalled how, quote, Every man in the investing line became an army engineer, day and night. The soldiers got so they bored like gophers, with a spade in one hand and a gun in the other. By June 3rd, despite increased enemy fire, Logan's approach reached a commanding knoll only 130 yards east of the 3rd Louisiana Redan. 
digging to the left and right along the crest of the knoll, the Federals established an advanced artillery position, which they called Battery Hickenlooper. Two 24-pounder howitzers and one six-pound gun were rolled forward along the sap, then manhandled into place atop the knoll. The breaching battery, as it was called, roared into action on June 6th, Two weeks later, two powerful 30-pound Parrot rifled guns were added. The Parrots soon created a breach in the earthen parapet of the Redan. Although the Confederates tried to repair the 3rd Louisiana Redan under cover of darkness, it was a futile effort. Federal artillery opposite the position, and nearly everywhere else along the siege lines, dug holes in the soft earthworks faster than the defenders could fill them in. By the end of the siege, the Army of the Tennessee had 220 guns of all types pounding away at Vicksburg's defenses. That number was augmented by 13 heavy guns from Porter's fleet. Those huge naval guns were hauled up the bluffs and placed in batteries. In addition, Union gunboats and mortar boats blasted away without let-up. Pemberton could do little to counter the relentless barrage of artillery fire that slowly pulverized his defenses and crashed into the town from all directions. Following the heavy loss of rebel artillery pieces during the inland campaign, especially at Champion Hill, Pemberton had only 128 pieces left to place in the landward defenses, and these were mostly light field guns. With the Federals having the upper hand in the artillery department, as the siege dragged on, the Confederate fortifications were slowly reduced to shapeless lumps of earth. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. By June 8th, Logan's approach was within 75 yards of the battered 3rd Louisiana Redan. 
that was so close the Confederates could shoot down into the approaching trench from atop their earthworks. To counter this threat, the Federals created an even higher position, which, although rather unorthodox, worked splendidly. Yep. You see, Lieutenant Henry Foster of the 23rd Indiana was known as Coonskin for the fur cap he wore, even, unbelievably, in the sweltering heat and humidity of a Mississippi summer. In any case, Foster was known as a crack shot, so he and his fellow Hoosiers, under cover of darkness, erected a tower of railroad ties in the Jackson Road just behind Battery Hickenlooper. Coonskin's Tower, as it came to be called, gave the Federals a high firing platform on this portion of the siege lines. Foster and other Union sharpshooters could see right down inside the nearby rebel positions, including the 3rd Louisiana Redan. Their deadly fire forced the Confederate marksmen to keep their heads down and permitted Hickenlooper's sappers to get back to work. Predictably, Confederate artillery attempted to wreck Coonskin's tower, which was a rather ramshackle affair that probably couldn't have withstood more than a few hits. But whenever the muzzle of a rebel cannon appeared, it was smothered by a storm of shell fire from the far more numerous and generally heavier Federal guns on either side of the Jackson Road, including the pieces in Battery Hickenlooper. Coonskin's Tower stood for the duration of the siege, a monument to individual creativity and determination. It actually became a popular attraction since, after being rotated off the front lines, many bored or curious federal soldiers made their way to the Jackson Road and asked to climb to the top. So many, in fact, that Foster began charging an admission fee of 25 cents which was a not inconsiderable sum in 1863. Among the frequent visitors to Coonskin's Tower was Ulysses S. Grant. The story is told that one day late in June, the commanding general was there examining the enemy lines through his field glasses when he thoughtlessly leaned too far forward and was noticed by a Confederate soldier across the way who hollered over and advised the foolish Yankee atop the tower in very strong language to get his head down or get it shot off. Desperate to halt the progress of Logan's approach toward their position, Brigadier General Louis Hebert and the men of the 3rd Louisiana resorted to chemical warfare of sorts. They wrapped bullets in coarse cloth soaked in turpentine and fired them into the cotton bales on the nearby sap roller. It didn't take long before the bales smoldered, then burst into flames. The railroad car was soon ablaze. This Confederate triumph, however, had little effect on Hickenlooper's operation. The Federals simply quickly assembled a more conventional roller, and the sappers resumed their work. By June 16th, the head of Logan's approach was within 25 yards of the 3rd Louisiana Redan. Hickenlooper was concerned about the possibility of a surprise Confederate raid, so he discontinued night shifts and constructed two lines of rifle pits on either side of the sap 
to provide additional protection. The approach finally reached the battered apex of the Redan on June 22nd. On June 23rd, Hickenlooper commenced mining operations. Prior to this stage of the project, the sap was a trench running crookedly along the surface of the ground, but it now became a shaft that descended below ground. Working in shifts and stifling conditions, 35 experienced coal and lead miners, all volunteers, tunneled under the apex of the Redan and then excavated a chamber called a gallery. The mining operation was audible to the Confederates inside the fort who sank a countermine, which is just what it sounds like, a shaft of their own, in the hope of locating the Federal mine before the inevitable explosion. As the rebels frantically tunneled into the earth in search of the enemy shaft, they could hear the sound of digging somewhere close by and even make out snatches of conversation, but they were never able to tell where the noises were coming from. On the morning of June 25th, the ground beneath the 3rd Louisiana Redan became ominously silent as the Union miners completed their task and withdrew. Ordnance personnel then packed the gallery at the end of the shaft with 2,200 pounds of black powder, while thousands of Federal infantrymen massed in the winding sap. Grant joined McPherson at Battery Hickenlooper to observe the explosion, which was scheduled to take place at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Once all was in readiness, the fuse was lit. On the Confederate side, Bear had been an engineer officer in the pre-war army and knew what was coming, so he withdrew his men from the apex of the Redan, since that was the most likely spot for an assault. Pemberton also realized that an explosion was imminent, almost certainly followed by an attack, so he moved troops into position behind the Redan to support Bear and counterattack any possible Union breakthrough. Tension ran high among the soldiers of both armies as three o'clock came and went without an explosion. Nervous Federals at the head of the assault column wondered if volunteers would be ordered into the tunnel to investigate the cause of of the delay. The clock reached 3.15, 3.20, then 3.25, and still all was quiet. The waiting came to an end at 3.28 when there was a muffled thud and the ground began to swell beneath the Redan. Then came a terrific crash and a huge mass of dirt and flames erupted into the air. Chaplain Nathan Baker of the 116th Illinois likened the explosion to an, quote, immense fountain of finely pulverized earth, and noted that the column of dirt was, quote, mingled with flashes of fire and clouds of smoke, through which could occasionally be caught glimpses of dark objects, men, gun carriages, and so on. The huge explosion blew away the forward part of the Redan and tore a hole in the earth 30 feet across and 15 feet deep. 
Moments after the blast, Hickenlooper and a detachment of pioneer troops stumbled forward through a heavy rain of dirt to try to clear a path across the crater for the Union infantrymen following close behind. While the pioneers frantically shoveled dirt and debris out of the way, wildly shouting soldiers of the 45th Illinois, led by Lieutenant Colonel Melanchthon Smith, surged forward through the sap four abreast and disappeared in the dense cloud of dust and smoke. Plunging straight ahead, Color Sergeant Henry Taylor scrambled up the pulverized wall of the Redan and planted the stars and stripes on the highest spot he could find, an action that earned him the Medal of Honor. As Federal soldiers poured through the smoking breach at the front of the Redan, stunned Confederates entered the open rear of the fort in a desperate attempt to drive them back. The ensuing battle raged for hours with terrible intensity. Men fought with clubbed muskets, bayonets, and fists. As the sun sank in the western sky, the crater slowly filled with the bodies of the dead and wounded. Reinforcements poured in from both directions. Attackers and defenders remained locked in a deadly, horrific struggle as darkness covered the battlefield. Union and Confederate soldiers hammered away at one another all night in a grim, bitter struggle for possession of the ruined fort. More and more fresh troops entered the fray. Incredibly, fighting continued without let-up as the sun rose on the morning of June 26th. As the morning wore on, however, Grant finally concluded that success had eluded him once again, and he ordered McPherson to withdraw his men from the crater and dig in along the wrecked exterior slope of the Redan. The struggle inside the 3rd Louisiana Redan lasted more than 20 hours. Miraculously, casualties on both sides were minimized by the relatively small space which allowed only a fraction of the troops actually committed to the battle to be engaged in combat at any one time. When all was said and done, the Federals lost 34 men killed and 209 wounded in the melee, while the Confederates lost 21 killed and 73 wounded. Among the rebel dead was Colonel Eugene Irwin of the 6th Missouri. Hickenlooper began construction of another shaft on June 26th. The Confederates sank another countermine, dug by eight slaves, but again failed to locate the Union Tunnel. At 3 o'clock on the afternoon of July 1st, the second mine, with a charge of 1,800 pounds of powder, was detonated. More of the Redan was demolished, but the explosion was not followed by a Federal infantry assault. The blast was intended to give Hickenlooper's men a sense of satisfaction and to impress upon the Confederates the hopelessness of their situation. The second blast killed seven of the slaves in the countermine, but the eighth, a remarkably fortunate man named Abraham, was blown into the air and landed behind Federal lines. A Union soldier described how, quote, one Negro was thrown 150 feet, lighting on his head and shoulders, scarcely hurting him. He attempted to run back, but a half-dozen leveled muskets brought him back. The Federal soldiers dusted off the lucky man, and one asked, How high did you go? To which Abraham replied, 
Don't know, Massa, but tink about tree mile. Not surprisingly, Abraham was an instant celebrity. During the remainder of the siege, enterprising Union soldiers placed him in a tent and charged their comrades ten cents to see him. As we said before, Federal engineers and work parties dug 13 approaches toward the Confederate defenses during the six-week siege. Saps and mines were dangerous and dramatic affairs, but they were only part of the extensive Union engineering effort at Vicksburg. The Federals created a mirror image of Lockett's landward defenses. The interior line, as it came to be known, was a system of trenches called parallels that roughly conformed to the rebel defensive line. At first, the interior line was a hodgepodge of disconnected diggings, but it eventually evolved into a complex maze of approaches, battery positions, covered ways, and other features, all anchored on the Mississippi River above and below Vicksburg. Altogether, it included more than 60,000 linear feet of excavations. The interior line served several purposes. It prevented the Confederates from breaking out or obtaining supplies. It also permitted the Federals to move men and material about with impunity. Finally, the constant construction gave the thousands of Union soldiers something to do during the six weeks of the siege while they waited for Pemberton to give up. All in all, the web of federal earthworks sealed the doom of Vicksburg. On June 30th, Grant was informed that all of the saps would reach the Confederate lines within a few days. When that happened, up to 13 mines could be detonated more or less simultaneously. This was the goal that Grant and his men had been working toward throughout the siege. To prepare for the final assault, the unsuccessful affair at the 3rd Louisiana Redan was studied and appropriate lessons were drawn from that experience. Now, sappers widened their approaches to permit the rapid passage of larger assault columns. Planks and sandbags were ready to fill in craters and ditches. Light artillery pieces would be brought forward right behind the infantry. The final all-out federal attack was tentatively scheduled for July 6th. The curtain was about to open on the final act in the great Vicksburg drama. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Grant at Vicksburg, The General and the Siege, by Michael B. Ballard. Before this book, no one had taken a detailed look at Grant's activities during the 47 days of the Siege of Vicksburg, but Ballard fills in that gap admirably, and the result is an intriguing portrait of Grant in the midst of one of his most notable achievements, the capture of the Confederate stronghold there on the Mississippi. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We want to give a big thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Carol, Mark, Bill, another Mark, 
and Doug. And then we also wanted to thank Peter for his donation. Yep, uh, donations are always appreciated, especially since we're still working on getting the last few Gettysburg books on our wish list. If you could see how many Gettysburg books we already have on the bookshelves and stacked up or laying around in just about every room, you'd think we'd have all the Gettysburg books we'd ever need. But we're always coming across just one more we'd like to get. Anyway. Anyway. Then, as this show draws to a close, we want to remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and end of each episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, which we use with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.